going to read from um, Acts chapter 8. Not sure what page it's on in the Bibles and the pews. Okay, 1101, or it's after Acts chapter 7 in Old Money. I'm going to start reading at verse uh, 26. Philip and the Ethiopian. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptised? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The official answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would speak to us through your spirit, that you would glorify Jesus in our hearing. Lord, we pray that you give us hearts to um, obey and minds to understand, to your praise and glory. Amen. I'm going to have uh, four words about this uh, passage this morning. A word about the background, a word about Philip, a word about the Ethiopian, and a word about baptism. So first of all, a word about the background. We've seen in our last few uh, weeks as we've journeyed through the book of Acts, um, the great uh, growth of the church. 
3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 a few days later, uh, people being healed uh, in the temple courts, crowds gathering, uh, the good news of Jesus being preached, and men and women and children uh, coming to faith. The Lord added daily to their number. The church is growing in their knowledge of Christ, they're growing in their uh, love for one another, they're pooling their resources, they're sharing materially uh, with one another, they're eating in each other's houses, and uh, they know the Lord's favour. But there are dark clouds on the horizon. Storms are gathering. Not everybody rejoices at the growth of the church. There are a number who are opposed to it. Uh, particularly amongst the Jewish leaders. One of those is a man named Saul, and he will uh, lead a persecution of the church. We see something of this persecution in the first few verses of Acts. I'll read again. Uh, 8 verse 1. A great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen. He was uh, martyred and mourned deeply for him. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Before he ascended, Jesus had promised his disciples uh, that they would take the good news of him uh, to the ends of the earth. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, And they're gathered in Jerusalem, and that's where the first uh, Christians are born. In Judea, which is the surrounding country around Jerusalem, the the Jewish nation. Uh, In Samaria, which is the neighboring country, and to the ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses in these places. What they didn't know was that it was persecution that would scatter them to these places. Philip ends up in Samaria. Other disciples end up in different places. Forced from their homes, uh, their businesses confiscated, they have to go on the run. Some of them are killed, many of them are imprisoned, and so the church uh, scatters. And yet God is at work even in the midst of this. This is a church that has known God's favour, that has known God's blessing, that has seen God at work in miracles and healing and in growth in their number. Yet that doesn't protect them from hardship, doesn't make them immune to persecution, doesn't mean that things will not go wrong in their life uh, together. When this persecution comes, it doesn't mean that they've uh, gone off track, it's not God's judgment for their failures. It doesn't mean that uh, God has abandoned them or forsaken them. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, says the Lord. Though you go through the fire, I will be there with you. Persecution is not a sign that God has abandoned his church or that they've somehow lost their way. But it's there right at the beginning of the church's life. Growth, blessing, favour, persecution, hardship, suffering. The two go together and are intertwined. That's the experience of many Christians in the world today. 
Christians in Iran, Christians in China, Christians in Pakistan and Afghanistan, Christians in India, Christians in Central Asia, Christians in North Korea. God's favour, God's blessing, healing and deliverance, growth, people coming to faith, hardship, suffering, imprisonment, death and destruction. Jesus said to his disciples, No servant is above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so it's in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of these troubles, that this encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian happens. And now a word about Philip. In preceding chapters, we've seen that Philip is somebody who is both Philip, uh, a spirit-filled and servant-hearted. In churches, we often want to divide people into spiritual and practical. Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? Are you practical or are you spiritual? Uh, my wife Sally grew up in a Baptist church. It's a church that had elders and deacons. Uh, the elders looked after the leadership of the church. Uh, they took care of the preaching. They led worship. Uh, they made sure everything happened in the home groups along the right way. The deacons, they did the practical stuff. They made sure that the building was in good order. They looked after the finances. They made sure um, all the grounds of the church were looked after properly. Uh, they checked that uh, all, the, all the kind of practical arrangements uh, went, went, went well. And it, and it worked well. It was a, a useful division to have. Philip was a deacon in the early church. He was one who'd been assigned to look after uh, the distribution of uh, money and food to the widows, to make sure that the goods that were given to the church were shared out fairly and equally to those who were poor. He was servant-hearted, yet he's also spirit-filled. He finds himself in Samaria and he preaches there and many come to faith. As well as being practical, he's eminently spiritual. He sees healings through his ministry. He's a deacon, he's a servant, he's a practical person. He's, he's about the day-to-day business of the church, yet he's also an evangelist. He's also somebody who's responsive to the word of God. And we see in Philip's life a truth that we all know, that you cannot divide the church into practical and spiritual. The two are fused together. Those who were deacons in the early church had to be every much as spirit-filled as those who were apostles and who were leaders. He's available to God. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out. Go to a barren place, a desert road, a place that's dangerous, a place where uh, nobody lives, a place, a, a highway, the M25. Go and stand at the side of that place. He's available to God. Verse 29. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Verse 30, Philip ran up to the chariot. 
He's sensitive to that still, small voice uh, whispering to him. When I've read this passage in the past, I've had in my mind uh, the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch uh, being something out of Ben-Hur. You know, four horses, a couple of wheels, spikes on the wheels, blasting down the road, full spelt, uh, full pelt. I've imagined Philip kind of running alongside it and then uh, miraculously uh, jumping aboard. Uh, the reality is a little bit more prosaic. Uh, the court of the queen of Ethiopia used chariots to get around, but they weren't Ben-Hur kind of chariots. Uh, they're a bit more prosaic. They were pulled by oxen. They would plod along the road at a walking pace. And so as this chariot plods into view, uh, Philip hears uh, the uh, Ethiopian reading, or perhaps a slave reading uh, to him. They're reading out loud. He hears this passage from Isaiah being read, and then he takes the initiative. He asks a question. Do you understand what you are reading. Spirit-filled and servant-hearted, available to God, not afraid to take the initiative, to take uh, the first step, to open a conversation. And he does it in a gentle and a winsome way. He doesn't dive in with the answers. He doesn't produce a a track. He's not got a a ready-made formula, a packaged uh, message. He isn't a salesman delivering a pitch. He asks the question, do you understand what you are reading? Then beginning with that passage of scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. He is Jesus-focused. His one aim in everything he does is that Jesus be glorified. We share out the food for the widows, let Jesus be glorified. Let's do it, let's do it equally, let's do it fairly, let's do it responsibly. Persecuted and scattered and sent to uh, Samaria or finds himself in Samaria, let Jesus be glorified. Let me uh, preach, let me witness where I'm planted. An opportunity to explain a passage uh, from Isaiah to an inquiring uh, mind. Let Jesus be glorified. The mark of the early church, the, the church in Acts, let Jesus be glorified in all we do, should be the mark of our church today. A word about the Ethiopian We now know Ethiopia as that kind of corner of North Africa. It's it's a defined uh, nation. There's lines on the map that say, this this is Ethiopia. If you're born in that country, uh, you are Ethiopian. In Jesus' day, uh, the the word or the name Ethiopia was was much more loosely uh, used to describe a, a people who lived in a particular part of Africa. The court of Queen Candace was actually based in what we now know as Sudan. That's where this man would have come from. He is an outsider. An outsider in a few different ways. He's a black African 
in Jerusalem or returning from Jerusalem, the Jewish uh, city. He is wealthy. He is important. He travels by chariot. He has retainers who travel with him. He's a court official, a treasurer of the queen. He has a name that means something. He's a eunuch. He's been uh, castrated, which is what happened to the officials in that court. Another thing that sets him apart, that marks him as different. So he's an outsider. He's a Gentile. Uh, He comes from what the Jews would see as a pagan tribe. He is a seeker. He's coming to worship. He belongs to a category of people that the the scriptures speak of as God-fearers. These are people who would come to the temple, who would worship in the temple courts, who would be attracted by aspects of the Jewish faith, who would be intrigued by the teachings uh, that went on in the temple, but who had not yet converted, hadn't stepped across that line. Um, hadn't made a commitment to become uh, Jewish, didn't keep the Jewish food laws, didn't keep the ceremonial laws, were not Jewish themselves. But nonetheless, they had a a, a belief in God and a reverence for God and were joined together in worship with the Jews. As an outsider, as a eunuch, he would be assigned a place in the outer courts, couldn't come into the heart of the worship in the temple. He's open to instruction. He's reading the scriptures. In those days when you read, you read uh, aloud. You'd either read aloud yourself or you'd, you'd have somebody who'd read aloud um, to you. If, you. if you could read silently to yourself, which was highly unlikely, but if you could, you're uh, likely to be accused of witchcraft. So it's unlikely that that would happen. And Philip hears... Um, him uh, reading. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. He's open to instruction. He's open to a conversation. And so are many of the people who we know. Many of the people who live around us, many of the people who know as well. There was a survey done, uh, commissioned by the Church of England, a number of denominations in the UK, uh, in 2015. And it was a survey done of people who don't go to church, people who don't identify themselves as Christians. And the church wanted to know, how do these people perceive us? What do they think of us? What, are the, what is their view of us, uh, those of us who would describe ourselves as committed Christians? So a service was done by the Barna Group. They asked a number of uh, questions. And some of the questions were, okay, do you know somebody who would describe themselves as a committed Christian? Somebody who's regular in going to church, somebody who reads their Bible, somebody who, who prays, somebody who's, uh, who, who will say at work that they are a Christian. of those who don't go to church said, yes, I know somebody like that. So two-thirds of the people in our community, 
Two-thirds of the people you work with, uh, two-thirds of your family and friends um, who, who, who don't come to church, they would say, yes, I know a committed Christian. And that person is likely to be you. And then they ask the question, well, how would you describe them? What do you think of them? What are they like? Not what is the Church of England like, not what is the Archbishop of Canterbury like, not what is your local vicar like, but this, this Christian who you know, what are they like? Tell us how you describe them. The most popular word to describe Christians was friendly. The second most popular word was caring. The third most popular word was good-humoured. Those people who know you at work, those people in your community, in your network of friends, who know you are a Christian, and two-thirds of them do, their view of you, most of them, is that you are friendly, that you are caring, that you are good-humoured. It wasn't all good news. Not everybody's making a great impression. As you get down the list of words, you come to some negatives. Narrow-minded for 13%. Hypocritical for 10%. Uptight for 9%. But most people think of most of us as friendly and caring and good-humoured. They're asked, have you ever had a conversation about faith with the Christian that you know? Some had, some hadn't. And then they said, after you've had that conversation, would you be interested in knowing more about Jesus? Do you feel like you've heard enough about Jesus? Would you not want to know any more about Jesus? And of those who'd had that conversation, one in five said, yes, I'd be interested to know more about Jesus Christ. People are open. People are receptive. People are intrigued. People like us. And they want to know more about our faith. Doesn't mean that four out of five wanted nothing more to do with us. Many said, that was a good conversation, that was fine, it went as far as I, I, I needed to go. But one in five said, yeah, I would like to know more. And finally, a word about baptism. They travel along, presumably for some time, they come across a, a stream or a river, and the Ethiopian says, look, why shouldn't I be baptised? Presumably he's seen baptisms at some point, or perhaps uh, Philip has explained to him uh, what baptism means. He's explained that it means dying and rising with Christ. That it means dying to one way of living and rising to a new way of living. That it signifies the washing away of sin. That it signifies rebirth, a new birth, uh, a new relationship with God. That it's about a new life starting. Can I be baptised? Asked the eunuch. The answer is this. 
If you believe with all your heart, you may. If you believe with all your heart, you may. The official answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He gave orders to stop the chariot, then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. Baptism signifies uh, an allegiance to Christ, a commitment to Christ. It declares that I'm going to follow Christ all the days of my life. That I've discovered that Jesus is who he says he was and he did what he said he came to do. That he's the way, the truth and the life. And he's going to be my way, my truth and my life. If you believe this, you can be baptised. I believe this with all my heart. And so he's uh, baptised. At St. Giles, our normal practice most, uh, most months on the third Sunday month is to have uh, the baptism of children. Uh, people bring their children for baptism. Uh, the meaning is the same, a new start, a new beginning, uh, a new relationship with the church, and a new beginning with Christ. Their parents and godparents make promises on behalf of the children who are baptised. They're asked questions. Do you turn to Christ? Do you follow Christ? Is Christ the way, the truth, and the life for you? The parents answer those questions. When I prepare uh, parents for the baptism service, when I talk about what these promises mean, I I use this model. People say, well, can I have my children baptized? And I say, well, if you believe this with your heart, you can. And this, this is what it means. This is what it's about. But it's not the only people who are baptised. Baptism is not just uh, for children. Significantly, it's for adults too. There's an opportunity coming up for us here at St. Giles uh, to have some adults baptised as well. We've set aside uh, Sunday, November the 19th as a Sunday morning where we'll baptise adults. There'll be no children's baptisms um, in that service. The opportunity is there for any who have not yet uh, been baptised uh, to be baptised. To make a declaration of faith, to, to say that they believe with all their heart that Jesus is who he said he was and came to do what he came to do. To identify with Christ. To declare that in Christ my sins are forgiven. That with Christ I have a new start in life. In Christ there is hope and joy and peace. If you've not been baptised, and you'd like to be baptised, there is an opportunity for you coming up. The requirement, the same as for the eunuch, that you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Before that baptism service, we'll have a time of preparation uh, we'll have, uh, depending on who wants to be baptised, we'll arrange some, uh, some teaching, some small groups. We'll look, uh, look through um, who the scriptures say that Jesus is. And then after appropriate preparation, uh, we'll have the baptisms um, here. This could be an opportunity uh, for you. 
you've not been baptised already, one of those things that has been um, undone in your life of faith, then there's an opportunity coming uh, to put that right. A word of background. The church knows God's blessing and God's uh, also experiences persecution for that blessing. A word about Philip. Servant-hearted and spirit-filled. A word about the Ethiopian. Open, receptive, seeking, like so many of the people around us. A word about baptism. An opportunity to affirm your faith in Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would teach us uh, to be like Philip, that we would be receptive to your spirit, that you would know you directing us to who we should talk to, who we could initiate a conversation with, who we could gently and winsomely um, ask questions and seek to find answers with them. Lord, we pray you'd open our eyes to those around us who we know well, perhaps too well. Uh, We'd like to explore who Jesus is uh, with us, if only we'd be um, open to taking those steps. Lord, we thank you for those in our church who have found uh, life in Christ, new faith in Christ. Pray for those who are already considering baptism. Lord, we pray that you would walk with them on that journey and you would help us to walk with them too. In Jesus' name, amen.